For a while now, I've held this theory that spring waits to be fully in bloom until after Easter, which is a very convenient belief for someone who lives in Chicago and fake spring is a reality, and as someone who is taught to experience life through a Jesus-centered lens. I thought my theory would be disproved this year because Easter is so late. Surely things would be lively and green by now, but my husband Andy and I took our son Oliver to the Botanic Gardens yesterday, expecting to see tulips and budding trees, and there was nothing, <laughs> blooming at a minimum. But we wandered around and looked for the tiny sparks of spring, little reminders of hope. And when I complained about the lack of flowers, Andy, knowing my theory, joked, well, it's not Easter yet. And whether or not this theory is actually true, I think I've trained my brain to start paying more attention to the growing flowers and budding trees after celebrating resurrection. It's become a steady rhythm between me and creation, looking for signs of new life, looking for glorious colors and persistent sunlight. In the Jesus tradition, Easter is the celebration of resurrection, and it's often painted as the pinnacle event of the story of salvation, the ultimate narrative of death not having the final say. Songs of victory, Easter lilies, the resurrection of a suffering savior, and a promise of hope. If you follow the course of this story unfolding, we don't immediately rush to resurrection. In Good Friday, which was observed a couple days ago, we remember Jesus' death on the cross. Last week, we talked about this with Lester and with Vince, that Christ dying on the cross was not a substitution so that a wrathful God could punish Jesus instead of us. Instead, we move toward an understanding of Jesus' death on the cross as an act of solidarity, an interruption of cycles of violence and revenge. James Cone in his work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, shows the similarities between lynching and crucifixion, inviting us to not gloss over the violent and brutal death that Jesus suffers. And we continue to see and hear gut-wrenching stories of brutality that end with violence and brutal deaths. Jesus experiences this suffering, and the cross demands that we look at the power structures and supremacies that continue to crucify. We then move to Holy Saturday, and the weight of grief continues as those who follow Jesus are left in a space of not knowing what was to come, a space of disappointment and confusion and emptiness. I was struck by Cole Arthur Riley's words as she writes, Holy Saturday trains us in the liminal. Can we make space for a pain that doesn't immediately resolve? And then we get to Easter. The past couple of years, the shift has felt abrupt for me, that somehow the resurrection outshines the weighty grief and sorrow of the tomb, which is hard when your own reality may feel more tomb-like and not particularly victorious. Moving to Easter may feel difficult when you're surrounded by loss and uncertainty. And so this year, my challenge has been wrestling with the way I may have separated out death and new life Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This binary is no longer serving me well. It's been helpful for me to reimagine the resurrection story not as one of unshakable faith or certainty, 
but as a story that centers grief and mystery. It's this messy middle ground, the intertwining of grief and hope, that we find a picture of resurrection that stands in an uncertain, violent, and unjust world. And so when I turned to the story of resurrection in scripture this year, I went to the book of John, which is probably my favorite gospel account. It's slightly different from the version that we read aloud a little while ago that we heard um, read by Lincoln, but it does contain similar elements, which is a good reminder that we don't look to scripture as a detailed history of preserved word-for-word conversations. Instead, we look to these stories as memories of Jesus told from different perspectives. So turning to the resurrection story here, I decided to use a method that we've talked about before. It's called Lectio Divina, and it is this drive um, to sit with scripture in a way that isn't an in-depth study of a passage, but it's to listen how the words are actively speaking to us in this moment. It can admittedly be a little self-serving, but it's deeply edifying. And I'd like to invite us to take this posture of listening and remaining curious as we look at the Easter story this year. I'll read the passage for us now that we're going to look at to further center us. And you can be listening for words that carry meaning for you in this moment. So this is from the book of John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. And there are a couple pieces of hope in this story for me that I've latched onto. It's been helpful for me and it may be helpful for you as well. The first is the simple phrase at the start. While it was still dark, Mary came to the tomb. A quick descriptive piece that I had skipped over other times I've read this story, but it's felt deeply meaningful for me this year. It is not in the sunlight and the clarity of day that Mary, a close follower of Jesus, goes to the tomb. 
In the shadowy early hours, she goes looking, searching for some type of meaning, perhaps saying goodbye. She does not know the full scope of resurrection when she goes to the tomb. She follows in the midst of her not knowing. In fact, we can see the narrative play out. We have this grand story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus held together in scripture. But for those whom Jesus encountered in his lived out life, resurrection was experienced moment by moment. The characters of the story, people who were in need of healing and resurrection, did they know about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that happened later? Maybe but they definitely knew what it was like to have been met in their embodied circumstances of suffering and pain and to experience healing. The course of restoration set by Jesus in the way he lived, not just the way he died, shows us that resurrection is a pattern, not a singular event. The cross was one of many resurrections. The image of Mary going to the tomb in the dark feels hopeful for me because it takes away the need for certainty without diminishing meaning. Rachel Held Evans has a great qualifying statement that she used when talking about different stories in scripture. She'd begin with, on the days that I believe this is true. On the days I believe this, which is so real. We read through part of this account in John and this story is wild and weird. <laughs> Whether you've been formed in religious settings or not, whether you would label yourself as skeptic or believer, having to accept the event of the resurrection of Jesus, a bodily resurrection can be a massive leap. And if this feels true for you, that the resurrection of Jesus as an event is difficult to believe, I'd like to suggest that placing hope in the pattern of resurrection depicted here can be just as sustaining a pattern exemplified by Christ in the Easter narrative, but one that is found all around us, like knowing the tulips will be in bloom and the trees will grow new leaves as real spring arrives, or letting go of parts of yourself that no longer feel true in order to embrace your full identity, experiencing loss and still being able to stay tethered to expectation. The pattern of resurrection can allow us to find a sustaining hope beyond ourselves. The second piece of hope that I'm holding on to this morning is that grief is central in the story. When Mary shows up at the tomb, it is not an act of faith. It's an act of grief. The other disciples who were there leave and go home but in her honest mourning and confusion, she stays and she weeps. And in this grief, she encounters Jesus. Weeping, lamenting, and longing aren't words that immediately come to mind when I think about Easter, but they are certainly present in the story. And I can imagine that for many of us, these feelings don't feel too far off. My encouragement here would be to not compartmentalize the emotions that feel difficult just because resurrection is being celebrated. They are not a fluke or a distraction from noticing God. Again, Mary encounters Jesus because she is grieving. It is not in spite of her sorrow that she sees Jesus. It's because of her sorrow. 
When we de-center certainty and embrace the full scope of human emotion present in the story, grief and hope can intertwine. The Easter story shows us that God, the divine, goes through many stages of human experience. Instead of highlighting just the cross, just the resurrection, we can see the beauty in the life of Jesus, the lived out life, the restoration of communities, the joy of healing, the willingness to challenge corruption and abuse of power taking place, seeing those on the margins entering into uncertainty and suffering, the humiliation and pain of crucifixion, a public lynching, dying, and resurrection and new life. The cross is not an escape, and we can't use it to over-spiritualize our own pain or the pain of others around us. Instead, it is a reminder that across the scope of tomb-like places and experiences of joy and hopefulness, God is present, the both and, not either or. In Lent, we've been going through the practice of leaving behind false or incomplete beliefs in order to take up new beliefs that feel more helpful, more beautiful, and more true. And Easter is a continuation of that work. I've been picturing the process we've been going through as pruning away what has been harmful in order to let new things grow, just as you would prune plants so that they can continue to grow. And this is an embrace of the pattern of resurrection. Some of us may be calling this deconstruction. In a recent conversation with a friend and mentor, Pastor Judy Peterson, she suggested that instead of deconstruction, this is actually composting. And I liked that depiction. Not letting old experiences and beliefs go to waste, but having a deeper understanding that even the things that are no longer serving us can contribute to the growth of new sustaining pieces of hope. This allows us to look lovingly at our past selves and all that we've experienced. Maybe shifting the focus to the glorious new life of Easter instead of dwelling in the weight and doubt of Good Friday served me in the past. It felt comforting to tether my hope to an ultimate picture of resurrection, and it still does. But this year, instead of dismissing my feelings of grief, confusion, and doubt, I'm noticing the ways that this spills over into resurrection, the ways that Mary's grief continues even after we have a resurrected Jesus. We've been taking up this pattern throughout Lent, of living into new ways of thinking instead of trying to think ourselves into new ways of living. So I'd like to leave you with a couple of suggestions here for experiments in letting grief and hope intertwine in your life. The first experiment is to invite Jesus into your grief. Now, I believe that Jesus is already there, that just like Mary, we can encounter God in our weeping. We don't have to ask for that. God is just already present. But there is something about inviting God in that helps us become more aware of God's presence within our sorrows. It becomes an invitation to have deeper attention paid to what is going on and an acknowledgement that we are not alone. You can imagine Jesus meeting you within the tomb and within the garden. 
You don't need to check your doubt, confusion, uncertainty, and lamenting in order to find meaning in resurrection. The second experiment here is to notice joy wherever you can find it. I've talked about this practice before, but Barbara Brown Taylor talks about this um, exercise where she encourages people to make lists of things that are saving your life right now. Collect what is bringing you hope. Keep track of what seems grounding. The hope doesn't override or cancel out grief, but it can keep us tethered. The pattern of resurrection shows us this. When I was a nanny a few years ago, there was one early spring afternoon that we were going for a walk around the neighborhood. And the then three-year-old ran over to what I saw as a seemingly empty plot of mulch and dirt. And she bent down and yelled, Miss Haley, look, the shoots, they're coming up. <laughs> the shoots are coming up. <laughs> and I bent down with her and noticed the tiny stalks of green, not yet blooming, but growing still. And now when I walk with my son as he toddles around our neighborhood, he similarly will bend down and notice the small things and inevitably try to put the small things in his mouth. <laughs> This Easter, could we take up the practice of noticing hope in what is not yet complete? In the midst of new life growing, where things seem so small that you have to squint to see the hope, would we pay close attention? And would this be a reminder that even as we are still in process, we will always still be in process? Somewhere on the course of resurrection, we can find meeting in our doubt, in our confusion, in our grief, we can find meaning still. We can experience the presence of the divine. We can find comfort within community and collectively hold both hope and grief. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you model this pattern of resurrection that we can see play out. That whether we are in spaces that are tomb-like or spaces that feel like a bright resurrection, an embrace of new life, God, that you are present. I ask that you would collect us as a community and individually. God, that we would be able to integrate our full selves in being present today, recognizing that you are with us, that we can remain tethered to hope, even in our grieving and not knowing. God, that you do not demand certainty for us. Instead, you are in the process of wrestling, the process of uncovering new things and the process of letting go of what has been harmful or unhelpful. God, would we continue to pay attention to the small pieces of hope that are around us? Amen.